Well, we just sang about our king sitting on his throne, and it's where he is today, but we're going to be studying about whenever he came off the throne, even though, you know what I mean when I say that, he was still reigning and ruling, but our Savior leaving the throne of heaven uh, to, become, to become a man, and we're going to study that today, this evening. Who says you got to preach the birth of Christ in December, right? Preach at any time of the year. A wonderful thing to study, wonderful thing to celebrate. As Alan mentioned at the beginning of our service, we've been going through this series. I was looking back, we started this August 21st, so around six and a half months in this series so far. And so every message, other than the very first one, has been in the Old Testament. The first message uh, was in 1 Corinthians, just kind of as an introductory to our series that we are going to start. Um, Dr. Spivey preached on that. But other than that, all our messages have been in the Old Testament. And this is the first one in the New Testament. And what better one to start than the birth of our Savior. And just kind of uh, obviously, the rest of the series, we will be in the New Testament uh, for, the remaining, for the remainder of this series. But starting in Luke chapter 2 tonight, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now there, obviously, a lot of time has passed since our last message. And even uh, as far as historically, and even just outside of Ezra, but you get to Malachi when that was written around 397 BC. And as you know, there, there was a period of time where a lot of, a lot of people call it the silent era, the silent period where you know, there wasn't any more inspired books written uh, as of this point in time. And so until, and, and obviously there are godly people in between uh, it wasn't like there was no godly people roaming the earth or anything like that. There definitely were God-fearing people during this time. But there was a silence, if you will, from, from God until you get to about 4 B.C. at the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And so there's this long period of silence, and God's people are probably having a lot of questions, wondering what is, what is going on? Why aren't we hearing from these prophets like our, our forefathers used to hear? Uh, and, and why are we going through this? And there, there, there could be many reasons, obviously, uh, maybe sin and, and all of this. But just think, put yourself in their shoes for a second, what they're probably going through and thinking, has God forgotten us? Has God just ceased to communicate with us? And looking back, obviously for us, hindsight's 2020, it's easy to see you know, what, what the reasoning was. But something that is really interesting to me is that you see, looking back in this text and historically, yes, there, there weren't prophets coming and, and giving messages like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and, and, and these, these godly men, but God was still working. He was still behind the scenes, if you will, setting up the stage for what was to come. One of the, if not the greatest prophecy ever fulfilled the birth of the Son of God. 
And so no matter how these people felt, no matter what they were going through, they could, whether they believed it or not, take comfort in God is still working, and he's still working behind the scenes. So historical background a little bit. Um, Caius Octavius, the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, comes into power around 31 BC, and he becomes the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And a couple of years into his reign, gives the, uh, receives the title or might have given it to himself, Caesar Augustus. And the name Augustus, and I have to be honest, I did not know this until this week, that means exalted or venerated one. So you have this man who uh, is the most powerful man on the face of the earth at the time. You have, you have, if you look at this story, you can almost make a sense of, you have a tale of two kings, if you will. There, there's this, Ro- this king of the Roman Empire, this one who claims to be the exalted one, the venerated one, the, the revered one. And there are a lot of good things in the sense that happen in this Roman Empire at this time as far as there is peace, the Pax Romana, things like this happening, an extended period of peace in this time, setting up the stage for this incredible, to say the least, that's putting it lightly, that's very much an understatement, but for lack of a better term, this incredible event to take place. And so because of this, this uh, unprecedented peace happening as, as he's leading and he's the supreme ruler he establishes this, the Roman Empire, um, everybody in the Roman Empire to be registered uh, to, to number each nation by family and tribe. So that's where we find ourselves in this passage. They have to, the, the people that live here in the first two verses we see in verse one, now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now, this wasn't, this wasn't to be registered uh, in your current residence where you're from. It's, it's where your tribal origin was from. That's why you have these two characters in this, in this narrative, Joseph and Mary, who, as we see in verse 3, uh, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David. So he has to go back, and this is about a 70-mile track, 70-mile hike. It's like, actually, I was thinking, I was going to say Roy City, but that's actually a little farther away. So, or it's that, Roy City is actually a little closer than here. But it's like going there and back and then some, but yeah, on top of that, Rugged terrain, obviously. Mountainous terrain. No telling what they could encounter at night. Band of thieves, whoever, animals. And then your wife is with child and is toward the end of her pregnancy, obviously. So you're dealing with all of this. A 70-mile walk, it's, it's hard for us to comprehend because we drive. So 70 miles doesn't sound like much to us. Obviously, you start walking, that's a different story. Three miles sounds like a long way when you're walking, right? 70 miles for a woman who is pregnant and could really give birth at any, at any time, probably. And then they're having to go back. So you can imagine the the discomfort, the inconvenience this was for Joseph and Mary 
to go back to their own city, to travel that far. But I, I can't help but wonder, because they were God-fearing people, because when Joseph found out about Mary, his wife-to-be, that she was with child, I mean, you, you can imagine the, the immediate emotions he felt because I guarantee you immediately he was not thinking what the real story was. And so the angel in Matthew 1, what's he do? He reveals to him in a dream that Mary is telling you the truth, that she, she is with child, she is a virgin, and she is bearing the Son of God. And so Joseph, by faith, goes forward and, and he remains with Mary. So he is a God-fearing man. He's a man of faith. Mary is as well. So I wonder, and this is all speculation, but I can't help but wonder if they thought on this trip, with all the prophecies there were concerning where the Son of God would be born, if they were thinking on this trip, because she knew who she was going to give birth to, if they were fulfilling a prophecy. The prophecy of Micah chapter 5 verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. I can't help but wonder if that verse along with others might have been in the back of their mind as they were traveling. I don't know if it made the trip any easier if they thought of it, but can't help but wonder if maybe some of those verses were coming to mind. But regardless, they were godly people, so they are people of faith. And Joseph, being the godly man, the leader he is, he takes her uh, and respecting the government's wishes to become registered in their homeland. And what's amazing is Caesar Augustus, this exalted one, doesn't even realize it, but he's fulfilling God's plan. Isn't that amazing how, how God uses not just believers, he uses unbelievers, people who are even against God to fulfill his plan. We've seen that all throughout the series, haven't we? From, from the book of Genesis, you, you see Abraham and his call and God using him, even his flaws, to get his will done. A man flawed, Moses, Joseph, all of these godly men and women through the Old Testament to get his will done, him using human beings. And, and it, it staggers me and takes me back if I really sit back and think about this because God, in his sovereignty, in his power, could get anything, he do, uh, could get anything done just with a snap of his finger. But the fact that he uses people to get his purposes done and people that despise him uh, I think that shows more of his power than if he just snapped his fingers and got it done, right? He used Caesar Augustus that made this law, guaranteeing you he wasn't thinking about this prophecy, probably never heard of it, but he makes this, and it just so happens that Mary is pregnant, and they need to go back to their homeland to be registered. Just so happens, right? Just so happens. But this is how God works. He works through the seemingly mundane. As we go on, again, it just so happens. Obviously, I hope you sense my sarcasm. In verse 5, 
in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were come, uh, the days were completed to her to give birth. She made it just in time, right? Just in time to Bethlehem to give birth. But look, look what it says. So if you were making this story, and as I was studying this, this is what I was thinking. If we were writing this story, and you know the Son of God, the Redeemer, the one who we've read about in this series through the Old Testament, just the scarlet thread of redemption, the one who would provide it in the flesh would, would come into this world and be born, how would you make this story? I know how I would make it. And it wouldn't be how it is written, right? It would be, he would be born in a palace. He would be born in royalty. He would have Caesar Augustus himself coming in and getting on his knees, worshiping this baby, right? That's how we would make it. At least that's how I would make it, to try and make this story um, seemingly build it up more, if you will. But Sorry, that's my watch. I'm not talking to you. The, uh, <laughs> the, but anyway, that's, um, that's how I would make it. That's how I would make it out to be. But that's not what God does, right? And praise him for it, that, that he did not consult us for how this prophecy would be fulfilled. That's not how it was going to be done. What, how, how did it happen? And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. What's a manger? Feeding trough. Where animals, where farm animals eat. Our Savior, who would redeem your soul from an eternity separated from him, came to this earth and was born in a feeding trough where animals ate their food. One born in a palace, wasn't even born in the inn where they were trying to go because there was no room for them. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. God visited our planet in the flesh in the form of a helpless babe, defenseless, in an ill-smelling manger, and from his birth in that manger to his death on a cross and everywhere in between, our Savior and our Lord never really had a place that he could call home. There was never a place of residence where he says, I own that, that's where I stay, that's where I, I live. Obviously, as a kid growing up, he lived with his parents, I get that. But you know what I mean. What did he say as, as an adult when he was calling, trying to call people to follow him? Foxes have holes, birds in the air have nests. These animals that he created have a place to stay. But what did he say after that? The Son of Man doesn't what? Have a place to lay his head. God in the flesh didn't even have a place to lay his head. As he was born in this feeding trough, we see the humility of God in the flesh coming into this world. And then as we go on, it's the, the narrative kind of changes scenes and, and we see what happens after this you would think there would be this grand announcement, and obviously there is, we'll see that, but you would think this grand announcement would go to royalty, 
would go to government officials, would go to the religious elite, would go to the Pharisees, the religious people who knew the Old Testament but didn't really know it. But what happens? Moving on, there is an announcement, an angelic announcement, but it goes to some unexpected people. In verse 8, it says, In the same region, so right outside of where Jesus was born, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Some ordinary people doing their job. Just regular men doing a difficult job. We don't realize uh, the harsh conditions of being a shepherd. You know, you see, you, you see pictures of, of shepherds drawn and, you know, the sheep look super sweet, super nice and just snuggling up to you and you're just relaxing on a rock. You know, that's, that's probably the very opposite of what a shepherd does. And not only is shep- being a shepherd hard work, it's a dangerous job. And that's what we don't realize a lot of times too is they, they were the line of defense and it weren't, uh, most of the time it wasn't even their sheep. They were doing this for somebody who owned these sheep, but they had to obviously work, but they loved these sheep. And so their job was to protect them at all costs. They were the first line of defense from anybody that would try and steal them, from any animal that would try and harm them. They would protect the sheep from themselves, right? Because they're not the brightest. One of my friends actually, you might have seen this before. One of my friends this past week sent me a video and the caption said um, how Jesus probably sometimes sees us when, when we sin, when he delivers us from sin. It's this, this shepherd taking this, this lamb out of this hole. And he, I mean, he's given all the effort he can. It takes him no telling how long, get him out of this little pit. He frolics a little bit, turns right back around, goes right back into it. I'm thinking, that, that's me. But the, that's the job of a shepherd. That's what they had to deal with. That was their profession. So these ordinary men doing their, their job faithfully were visited. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. You talk about something unexpected they did not see coming going into work that night on the night shift. An angel coming before them and the glory of the Lord the Lord shown to them. I, I don't know what this looked like. I don't know what this glory was. It's interesting, this word glory, we get the word doxology from, this, this expression of glory where this, this act of this act of worship. And so these angels come and they're very afraid. And just as I mentioned earlier, these shepherds, I mean, this is tough work. These aren't, these aren't uh, wimps, if you will. They're, they're very rugged men and they were terrified at the presence of this angel. And the response was, don't be afraid. That's easy for them to say, maybe. Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Imagine once, if they ever stopped being scared, I don't know, that, that's a pretty frightening experience, but imagine an angel coming to them and thinking, why are you, a shepherd thinking, why are you coming to me? <laughs> I'm just an ordinary guy, I'm, you know, 
Why are you coming to me expressing this message that you're about to share? And listen to the message that they share to them. Listen to how there's so much to be unpacked in the message that they give in verse 11. For today, in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So much right there in that, in that one message. Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. He's the Savior. It's expressed in his name, Jesus. God, God is salvation. He's our salvation. The Savior has been born. Who is who? Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel, the, the Redeemer, the Savior of the world, who is Christ, and he didn't stop there. What, what else did he say? The Lord, the Master God manifested in the flesh. He has been born tonight. And so these shepherds hear this message from the angel and can't help but wonder what they thought after hearing this. They're probably thinking, okay, where is he? How will you find this great Savior who is Christ the Lord? Where is he going to be? What, you know, I might not be able to see him because he's probably in a palace somewhere. But what did the angel say? He said, this will be a sign for you. Okay, I'm waiting. What is this sign? You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. <laughs> I'm sure they're already surprised that these angels were talking to them, giving them this message. They probably were just as surprised hearing where this Savior was born. But this is where he was. And as a result, heaven itself couldn't stay silent. Because what does it say? In verses 13 and 14, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Heaven couldn't stay silent over the birth of the Redeemer, over the birth of God in the flesh. And so, glory, this praise be to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Who, who is these men that he is pleased with? Men and women, obviously, that he is pleased with. Well, what does it say in Hebrews 11.6? Without what? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those who have faith in believing that he is who these angels say he is. Peace among men with those who believe that he is the Son of God. And I think that's a big reason why these angels came to these shepherds and not the religious elite, not to the Pharisees, not to uh, the kings, not, not to royalty in that regard, because they wouldn't believed, most likely, right? If the angels came to them. But going to these shepherds, these humble shepherds, these, these men who are faithful in their work, only time they're mentioned in Scripture, going to them and saying, hey, city of David, in a manger, Christ the Lord, the Redeemer, the one who's going to save you from your sin and save the entire world. For anybody who calls upon him from their sin, he is born today. So what was their response as a result from this? After being stunned, the shepherds have a response. They obviously have to do something with this. 
Verse 15, so when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds, what did they begin saying? Did they say, let's go see if this is true? Is that what they said? Let's go see. I mean, an angel just came to us saying the Savior of the world has been born in a manger. Let's go see if this is true. No, that's not what they say. It says, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened. They already knew. They had faith. They believed. I mean, obviously an angel coming to you and telling you this leaves you pretty speechless, but they had faith and believed that what this angel, this messenger said, these messengers said was true. So as a result, they said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The Lord chose to reveal this message to us. What an honor they must have felt. The faithfulness of these shepherds to the good shepherd to see, go see him. So they came, obviously, in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered, or they marveled at the things which were told to the shepherds. They, they, they were amazed at this message they, were, they had received. And as, consequentially, in verse 20, it says, The shepherds went back, glorifying God, or glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. They go, they witness that, yes, Jesus is born in a manger. They tell Mary, Joseph, what they had encountered. They marveled at this message that was shared with them. And they leave, praising God, glorifying him for all they had heard and seen. A work, a work night like no other. There would never be a better night at work than that, than getting to see the Son of God wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This is a text where I mentioned earlier, you know, you don't just preach, you don't just have to, you don't have to just preach in December, right? But this is a text you hear so much. And I've said this before and I'll say it again because, I mean, I've, I've experienced this. You come to a text like this that you read at least once a year. I hope you read it more times than that, but you're very familiar with it. I know the story. There's a lot of people that have memorized these 20 verses even and know the story inside and out. But may it never lose the power, the meaning behind it in our lives, that God himself, I, I, I don't think any of us can fully wrap our minds around this, but that God himself stepped into his creation in the form of a baby. And he didn't, he didn't come to the earth as a fully grown man and offer himself as a sacrifice From conception, he came into the world. And he experienced what you and I experience every day. Temptation. But what does it say in Scripture? 
He encountered all these things, yet what? Without sin. The true king, the king that Israel wanted, I, I preached 1 Samuel 8 a couple months ago. They wanted a king. And time after time after time, their kings would fail them. They would have some good ones. Obviously, David was a wonderful king. Still, he was a flawed man and suffered a lot of consequences from his actions, from his sin. And finally, Israel and the world would get the king that they needed. And he didn't enter in the way that they probably expected him to enter, into a palace and then to come in as an adult you know, on the stallion riding in and saying, we're going to overthrow the Roman government. That's not what he did. That was not his purpose. His purpose was to do exactly what he did. And that is redeem man and set them free, yes, from spiritual bondage. Uh, Absolutely. One of the most favorite, or one of my favorite things that I've read since being in seminary is just the work of um, Athanasius on the incarnation. And it's a simple book which helps someone like me. And he explains why Jesus had you know, to come the way he did. Not as a, not as a grown man coming into the earth to, be, full, to sac- be sacrificed then and there, but be, to come as a baby and live his entire life and die the sinner's death that he did die. And I, I think he puts it very well when he said, what then was God to do? What else could he possibly do, being God, but renew his image in mankind so that through it, men might once more come to know him. And how could this be done save by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ? Men could not have done it, for they are only made after the image. Nor could angels have done it, for they are not the images of God. The word of God came in his own person. Because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who would recreate man, made after the image. And then he concludes by saying, in order to effect this recreation, however, he had first to do away with death and corruption. Therefore, he assumed a human body in order that in it, death might once for all be destroyed and that men might be renewed according to the image. The image of the Father only was sufficient for this need. This is how it had to be done if man was going to be renewed. So what's, what's the point of this? What do, we, what do we do with this? Well, first of all, the main point, God in the flesh came to live this sinless life, to die a death he did not deserve, to die the death that you and I deserve, facing the wrath of God so that you and I wouldn't have to face it. But it all had to start here, in this feeding trough, where the shepherds were notified, and they praised him, and they worshiped him. It had to be done this way. What, what else? I couldn't help but think throughout this study, and, and you know the passage, Philippians chapter 2. You're, you're probably at least familiar with it. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance 
As a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. If there's something we can learn from this and apply to our lives in the life of Jesus is look who he is and look how he came to this earth. And not to try and preach a separate message, I'll say this and I'll, I'll, I'll end it in this regard. But look how he came to this earth. Entitlement should have no part in our lives. <laughs> There's nothing that I deserve but God's wrath. And he has extended me mercy by coming into this world and living the sinless life. So I deserve nothing. When we have those feelings of entitlement, I deserve this, I, I didn't get this, I, I need this. Take a look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, 5 through 11. And then tell me if you still feel like you deserve whatever it is you feel entitled to. But it also shows that God does work through the mundane, through these shepherds who were doing their job, through the Roman emperor who is more concerned, you know, with his rule and his reign and his image, yet God still worked over time through all those silent years, those 400 years, steadily paving the way for the Son of Man to come into the earth. So also whenever there are times when you feel like God isn't working in your life, you better believe that he is. And we are to trust him for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Your mercies which are new every morning. Father, we we thank you as well for this narrative in your word revealed to us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that he wasn't born in a mansion. He wasn't born by the world's standards into royalty. He was born in probably one of the most humiliating ways a person, a king nonetheless, and most importantly, the king of kings should have been born. But you chose that to show us that he humbled himself so that he could become, even though he was already the son of God, he, he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And it all started that night. And we praise you for that. May we do as Mary did and hold this message in our hearts. As we hold this message in our hearts, may we not just keep it there, but may we take it to those around us, to those here at church, but especially those outside of these four walls, those who are hurting, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and tell them of this Savior who came to redeem them from their sins and that he will do so if they will call upon him. We praise you and we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.